Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast with me, Phil Agnew. Today I am joined by Tim Ash. Tim is a marketing expert with 25 years experience running his own marketing agencies. He's a keynote speaker, a trainer and author and his latest book, Unleash Your Primal Brain, caught my eye after being shared extensively around the behaviour science community. In the book, Tim looks at how many of the decisions we make today are influenced by evolutionary traits that developed several thousands of years ago. I've invited him on the show to discover what marketers could learn from taking a look back at how we all evolved. To start off, Tim talks through a core concept in his book called The Lie of Rationality. Now, many of us believe we are completely rational, that all of the decisions we make are well thought through and considered, but... Tim is pretty certain that that's not the case. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. I think one of the, the chapter that I start with in my book, chapter one, in fact, is called The Lie of Rationality. There's a longstanding bias in Western civilization towards thinking that what makes us unique and special and qualitatively different than other animals is the ability to reason and plan and make quote unquote rational decisions. And the untamed emotions, they're just left over from our primitive past and need to be tamed and uh, controlled and compensated for and suppressed even. So I think that view is completely wrong. The, the reality is our mind, our brains rather, are an evolutionary construct. It's just a, a fix on top of a tweak, on top of an improvement, and all of that underlying machinery is still there. And it really works well. We share it with insects and uh, reptiles and other mammals. So they're basic building blocks that are doing most of the heavy lifting. And yes, there are some bizarrely strange things that make us human, uh, but those are very late in our evolution. So to think about which brain is in charge, the conscious or the unconscious, the unconscious brain is, is in the driver's seat. Once in a while, 
when things aren't dangerous and it's something we haven't encountered before, it comes up to our conscious part of the brain for thinking about it. But that's actually a fairly rare occurrence. Most of our thinking and decision-making is on autopilot because it works most of the time. Tim's building on Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 modes of thinking. Now, we've spoken about System 1 and 2 before on the show, but as a reminder, System 1 is the fast, unconscious, automatic part of the brain. It doesn't involve rationality or self-awareness, while System 2 is the slow, deliberate, conscious part of the brain. This part involves mental process and rational thinking. Now, if I was asked a few years back, I'd probably say that System 1, for me, only accounted for maybe a small percentage of my decisions. Maybe I'd say 20% of those decisions were, were not thought through, so to speak. I'd say that the vast majority of my decisions were made by my conscious System 2. After all, I don't consider myself to be irrational. But that view, my view, my previous view, is dramatically different from the truth. In reality, System 1 makes 98% of all of our decisions, and System 2 only accounts for 2%. In Tim's book, he talks extensively about how our evolution has shaped who we are today. System 1 and System 2, he states, are relics from our evolution, but so is our need to collaborate and work with others. Human beings are placed one big evolutionary bet. If you look at other animals that occupy a wide ecological ranges, they physically evolve and adapt to their environment. The example I use is squirrels. Some have 180 degree rotating ankles to run down tree trunks. Others have giant wings to glide between trees. Still others kind of semi-hibernate to avoid the heat of the desert sun. So they're making physical adaptations. Whereas human beings are essentially all the same. The pygmies of, uh, of Africa are not that different in size than the Dutch, who are the world's tallest. And we may have different eye color and skin color, but essentially it, we placed one big evolutionary bet, and that was to transmit culture. In other words, if we kept our brain flexible and learned about our immediate environment from our surrounding tribe, then we would have an advantage because that's much more than we could ever learn in a lifetime on our own. And the, the roots of that cultural spread very much influence our behavior. To help us develop these strong social ties and develop this culture, our brains actually developed in a different way. Here's Tim talking through how our evolution enabled us to build strong social ties with others. So a key to understanding this is how plastic our brains really are and how useless we are until our brains are wired up. I mean, when you think about bizarrely human things, we give birth to giant headed babies and our brains in general, but specifically the new parts of the brain, the neocortex are not insulated at all. So they're open to making new connections and eventually they're insulated with fat, each of the neurons, to reliably transmit information. So a chimp's brain is about half the size it's going to be when it's born. It's adult brain size. A human brain is only a third of the size of its adult volume. And most of that neocortex in chimps, about a fifth is already insulated, if you will, pre-insulated to do smart things. And in humans, zero is pre-insulated. So Chimps are basically done wiring up by the time they're teenagers and human beings continue to evolve their brains and learn 
you know, well into their mid twenties and brain growth isn't really complete till your mid forties. So we're set up to learn as much as we can about our specific surroundings. And that's what gives us our edge. But the adaptations to do that and to spread culture have to do with, uh, for example, having um, being incredible mimics. Since we can't explore the world physically, we watch everything around us. And we have mirror neurons that are very sophisticated, more so than in other animals, that essentially let us experience what they're doing by just watching them. That's a very powerful modeling mechanism. We also have caretakers that live decades beyond their reproductive years. We're the only mammal that does that. And once you stop having babies, most other animals just die because they're useless. Whereas our elders are transmitting culture to previous generation or to the next generation. So that's a huge edge. And in order to have this culture spread continue, there's a few key uh, ingredients. The first is our willingness to learn and mimic and imitate everything without question. The second is the need to transmit that knowledge and uh, not break the chain. So unlike just mammalian dominance, we also have a motivation, which I call prestige, which makes us want to teach others the skills that we know. And instead of bullying, um, like we do in mammalian herds for dominant status, in order to get prestige, you actually want to attract people to want to learn from you ultimately. So those are the big adaptations culturally and how those play out in a variety of spheres is what makes us unique. The evolution of mirror neurons, according to Tim, was a huge milestone in becoming social beings. These neurons are responsible for many of the traits that we need to collaborate. Research suggests that these neurons allowed us to build self-awareness, to learn language, and even to empathise with others. They also reveal why nudges like social proof are so powerful. We're literally wired to follow the actions of others. What's interesting, however, is that most of us struggle to recognise how influenced we are by these primal evolutionary traits. Tim talks about the lie of rationality, that despite what we think, we rarely make rational decisions. Well, one of my favourite Robert Cialadini studies reveals this. Now, we all know Cialadini's social proof study with the towels in Arizona hotel rooms, but he did a really interesting follow-up study which looked at encouraging Californians to use less electricity. Now, to start with, participants were shown four options and asked, how important are the following options for you in conserving energy? The options were that conserving energy protects the environment. Second was that it benefits society. Third was that it saved money. And fourth, the fourth reason was that lots of other people were doing it. Participants ranked the factors in that exact order, saying the most important factor was the environment, second was society, third was how it saved money, and then fourth, the one they, they thought was least impactful, was that lots of other people were doing it. That's what the participants said, but would they act in the same way? Cialadini did a field test to check if people's actions matched up with what they said, and what he found proves this lie of rationality. When presented to Californians in a field test, the factor that actually encouraged them to use less energy was the social proof message. The fact that other people were conserving energy. But what actually makes someone more likely to follow the actions of others? Well, Tim suggests that it's a good story. But not for the reasons you might expect. 
The first thing we need to talk about when we talk about storytelling is its evolutionary purpose. And there are two main reasons that storytelling exists. Uh, the first is a form of simulation. As I mentioned, even when we're, when we're not doing computational tasks, we kind of start simulating and updating our social place in the tribe. Storytelling allows us to simulate something that somebody's telling us about. So there's a movie I, um, that is very difficult called Sophie's Choice. It's about this woman in a Nazi concentration camp, and she's essentially being asked to pick one, which of her children is going to die. And that's a horrible choice. Imagine that, especially if you're a parent, it's just unthinkable. And so when we watch that movie, what we're doing is we're simulating that and our internal states change and everything else, but we don't have the actual impact of having to make that choice. So stories are a form of simulation. That's really, really important. The other reason stories exist from an evolutionary standpoint is to maintain tribal cohesion. So stories are used to, I guess you could say, reinforce cultural norms and pass on the values of our tribe. So the same objective story has very different meanings depending on the recipient and what it activates inside of them. Let me give you a quick example. Imagine that, um, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. So the matador deftly sidesteps the charging bull by flicking his cape and gets up on his tippy toes and plunges the sword into the bull's shoulders from above, instantly killing it with a strike through the heart. Now, that's an objective story. If you tell that story to a Spaniard who loves bullfighting, it's about man versus nature, about being an impeccable warrior, about training, about excellence, a number of other things, tradition. Whereas if you tell that story to somebody from people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA, they're going to think this is just barbaric animal torture and it's being subsidized by people paying money to watch it. So the same objective story, but depending on the cultural values of your tribe, it's going to be experienced very differently. In one case, it'll um, create group cohesion for fans of uh, bullfighting. In other cases, it'll create revulsion and, and a desire to, to change things on the part of animal rights activists. It's an important point. A story, depending on your tribe, beliefs and background, can be interpreted very differently. This is something many of us in marketing need to consider as we're regularly talking to a range of different audiences. I asked him if he had any tips for us marketers. The mistake that most marketers make when they're messaging or storytelling is to come up with a story that matches their quote unquote brand. And that's a completely backwards way of going about it. What you need to do is to figure out what very tight segment you're trying to talk to. So if you have a brand that's like, oh, we're great for everybody. There's 8 billion of us on the planet. Everyone could benefit from my product or service. That's a crappy brand. So you really need to be super focused, especially since all the big niches are already taken. Know exactly with laser focus the audience you're trying to target. The second step then becomes understanding what their cultural values are. And this is critical. So what activates them? What, uh, what are they passionate about? What do they bond around? It may not have anything to do with your product or your service, it, it, but it does have to do with 
what keeps their tribe together. And only then do you develop messages in the form of stories because they sneak past all of our conscious defenses that activate the right tribal attributes. Now, obviously, political propaganda is a great example of this. So what you're trying to do by telling certain kinds of stories in the USA, President Trump talking about you know, rapists and murderers coming across the border, he's talking to a particular tribe, white, mostly evangelical, um, lower education voters. And what that activates in them is a fear response that he can reliably count on to uh, make sure they go and vote for him. So um, you have to understand your audience, understand their values, and then tailor your messages to them. It's no surprise to hear Tim say that matching stories to the audience is smart. Previously on the show, Blindsight authors Matt and Prince have explained that this too is an evolutionary trait. Research by Pickering and Garrod actually coined a name for this. It's called interactive alignment. Their research shows that only after a few minutes of talking, our speech, posture, tone and language all changes to match the person we're talking with. What's more, Most of us have no idea that we're doing this. When questioned, participants said they couldn't notice any change in how they were talking. This is a trait that is so deeply embedded in us that we don't even realise it. To finish our discussion, I wanted to ask Tim a tough question. We have spent an hour at this point chatting about how traits developed thousands of years ago during human evolution are still affecting our decisions today. Which got me thinking, do we really have free will? If choices made today are influenced by evolutionary traits rather than rationality, then does free will really exist? Or are my decisions around buying a McDonald's, picking a job and choosing my spouse all due to traits that I can't control? I asked him. I don't know about philosophically talking about whether we have free will or not, but I will just say that choice is often an illusion. Uh, that we have much less control than we think. It's much more situational and can be easily manipulated by marketers and others in the immediate environment. For example, I can play a certain jingle or melody in a store, and whether I play it next to a display case, uh, one octave higher or lower will significantly impact the buying behavior of people near that, uh, that display. So just not even the melody, but just the frequency of it. Uh, Same thing about smells, uh, if they're familiar or unfamiliar. The same thing happens whether we're hungry or what our current motivation goals are. So for example, uh, there's a famous study of Israeli judges that are looking for people and whether deciding whether to give them parole. And what they found is that uh, right before lunch and at the end of the day, those are really, really crappy times to come up on their docket because uh, when their blood sugar is low, they're much harsher and they make summary judgments and usually reject the parole application. So if you're going to get in front of an Israeli judge, make sure it's right after breakfast or right after lunch. So there you have it. Products you purchase today aren't down to rational decisions, but due to heuristics developed thousands of years ago during our evolution. And even in the most rational of environments, like a courtroom, decisions here are still influenced by these biases. 
To learn more about our evolutionary traits and our primal brain, I'd suggest checking out Tim's book, which I've linked to in the show notes. And if you enjoyed listening to Tim and you want to get in touch with him directly, then feel free to head to his site, timash.com. Now, if this discussion has taught me anything, it's that we follow the actions of others. So please help me out by sharing Nudge with others in your community. It really does help the show grow. And if you've got any feedback, suggestions or comments on the show, ping me an email at nudgepod at gmail.com or connect with me on Twitter. Over there, I'm at P underscore Agni. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Nudge.